0: Come spellweavers, reavers, rogues, and men at arms, and answer the call of adventure. Pick up your sword, your axe, your spellbook, your bow, your rulebook, and your dice, and join the forces of good in their eternal fight against vile monsters, conspiring min maxers, horny bards, and blood soaked murder hobos. Discover the treasure trove of role playing games here on Roland Bone. My name is Ryan Howard, and I shall be your guide. Good evening, Boneheads, and welcome back to Rolling Bones with Ryan Howard, where we are making old school young again. I'm your host and King of the Boneheads, Ryan Howard, and uh, tonight we are going to be joined by uh, a guy who's got uh, something really cool going over on his YouTube channel. Uh, you know, he's talking a lot about some of these brosr ideas that Jeffro and others have been talking about, uh, but he does so behind the moniker of the gelatinous rube, which is a fantastic play on words. Uh, you probably also know him as James Streisand. He is a, you know, Talking a lot about the same stuff that that Jeffro and I uh, talked about last week, and so I'm excited to dig into this and and to find what exactly this uh, grand campaign thing is that he likes to talk about. Uh, but first, I just want to remind everyone that if you enjoy what you're seeing here on Rolling Bones, uh, please like, share, and subscribe. Uh, that's the best way to uh, you know help people find what we've got going on here. It's a uh, you know, definitely a, a good way to uh, to support what we're doing here. And I appreciate every one of you who uh, who does that. I uh, also want to remind everyone that we are uh, available over here on these uh, various uh, social media platforms on Twitter and Instagram. I am at Howard underscore Ryan Gregg. YouTube is Roland Bones. Twitch is twitch.tv slash Roland Bones Ryan. And Substack is Roland Bones Dot com, And just want to remind everyone, uh, Substack is kind of where you can hear my thoughts on a regular basis as far as, uh, you know, what I'm thinking about in role-playing games. I'm taking a little break from it this week and next week, because this week, just, you know, my day job is crazy, and next week I'll be at the beach. But you can find all my articles, old and new, here. Uh, fighter as a commander is the most recent one. I'm really proud of that one. I think I uh, expanded on some ideas that I, uh, you know, put out there uh, in my uh, Fighter video, so I hope you guys will join me over there on Substack. And also, if you want merch, you can find it over here on the Bonehead Emporium. I'm going to go ahead and drop that link here in chat for all of you, as well as the link to Substack. Um, this is where you can get all of your bonehead merchandise, your I just want to grill and game shirt, your bonehead shirt, your Rolling bone shirt. All of these are available also as hoodies, long sleeve t-shirts, you know, all that good stuff. Uh, so let me go ahead and drop the link to Substack here. And then that's enough of me kind of, you know, shilling for myself here. Uh, let's bring on the guy that you're all here to see uh, on Twitter. You can find him at Rube Jelly. Uh, once again, he is the uh, the gooey one himself, the gelatinous rube. Welcome to the show, James. Howdy. Hey. All ready. How are you tonight?
1: I'm not doing so bad. Not everything here. I probably should oh. not have turned my air off before this, but besides that, I'm ready to get started.
0: Sweet. Well, James, we're going to kind of start this the same way we start every interview. I've got, you know, questions everyone gets asked on here. So, to start at the beginning, how'd you get into role-playing games?
1: I get into role-playing games. My buddy Matt, uh, from a friend group that was uh, based on a number of family friends, and was all pretty much a few years older at me than me at the very least, uh, invited me to play some board games one night. We went over, played a couple of board games. We had a reasonable amount of fun. We weren't terribly good at the first few scenarios we ran through. You know, just a couple of ones for Star Wars and stuff like that. And then my buddy Matt said that he was running a game called D&D that he had just gotten. And wanted to test it out. Wanted to see um, whether or not people would enjoy playing it. uh, Which is a pretty similar manner to how he got everybody else in our group. And I... Enjoyed it at first. Um, I had like a period in the middle of playing where I was kind of like lapsing and just kind of like I don't, I don't really know why I'm playing this game. And then it really picked up for me thereafter. And that's after that, I was sold.
0: Gotcha. Uh, what edition was that that you guys were playing?
1: Oh, that was fifth edition. Gotcha. gotcha. Right at the beginning.
0: Sweet. Now, if you, like, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? Because you look like you're right around my age.
1: I'm 26.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm 27. So there we are. There I started know. with fifth edition as well. So
1: I hear some people get awfully upset about that, but I don't know what to tell them.
0: <laughs> yeah, Look, that's one of those things I I really don't understand getting mad at someone for the edition they start with because like usually it just has to do with the you know like the year that you started playing is the edition of D and D you started with so. I like as long as if I
1: could have started with fourth edition, I would have. Um, if I if there was some way for me to avoid Casimir Ivansky's terrible, awful dog shit design that never should have seen the light of day. <laughs> if it were up to me, nobody would have had to suffer that fate.
0: Fair enough. I I can't disagree with you. And uh scratchy Matt here, young splainers, exactly. Exactly. And then Jack can't Kingsbury, believe... can't believe that young people are allowed to talk. People
1: that young are allowed to talk. Well, it's because I sound like both your dad and the voice of God. Okay, <laughs> That's... So I get some kind of pass.
0: That's true. You do have this uh, kind of booming voice that that sounds very, very good to the ears. So, you know, you're you're doing great in that regard.
1: Around 18, I figured that the face for radio should be accompanied by a uh, similarly specced voice, and it was a a natural choice from there.
0: Fair enough. Now, uh, the next question I have for you, you know, those of us who put a lot of effort into role-playing games, we don't do it for money, we don't do it for glory. uh, We seems like we don't do it for the intelligent conversation sometimes. But... uh, (laughs) We do this because we love the game. And that love for the game comes from fond memories we have of playing with our friends and really enjoying this hobby. So if you had to pick a fondest RPG memory, what would that be?
1: Oh, fondest RPG memory. It's split between two. Um, One is we were going down to the village of Orlane. I think my buddy Cale was running against the Giants, once again in fifth edition. I we were higher level characters I think we we're like 8th level or something like that and we bypassed a bunch of encounters that we were supposed to run into surveyed the area there's fire giants and fire elementals and stuff like that around and I said Caleb I have I have all these spells that are based around traps I would like us to spend the next 24 hours trapping up this this town square and once we complete that I would like to I you know we've created a plan with the party you know we're uh boosted up on every single uh every single magic item you could think of plenty of custom exotic ones it's, it's a ton of fun and after we're finished after like 12 hours of trapping up this village and going underground and digging tunnels and stuff like that in order to accomplish it we get as many enemies as we possibly can uh to come attack us it took like two full sessions of combat and like not like three hours it was like five hours six hours a piece of just combat uh resolving it mm-hmm. and it felt it felt ridiculously gratifying to to clear out a location in that fashion yeah uh it was a pretty epic fight the second favorite memory is the closing of my friend matt's campaign called styria it was the one that he had started with he ran two other campaigns in it I was reprising my original character and uh, we ended, it, it was just a standard or I shouldn't even say standard because it really wasn't. Um, it was an ascension story or cultivation story at the end accidentally. Uh, we ended up, we solved the calamity that was affecting the world by placing ourselves in this machine. Two other friends decide to place their themselves in the machine of their own accord and at the machine's Shut down, we become gods, and the threat affecting the world um, was resolved. And it was this climax of uh, three separate campaigns, each of which had lasted about a year or two long, hmm. and uh, and was the resolution of that campaign world that he was running. And it was especially coming from. It was gratifying because I was coming with a character that I had initially not enjoyed playing. And grown to absolutely love playing over the course of the second half of the second campaign, and the third campaign as well. And it was, um, it it just felt like everything was coming together, and things things had been made right. You know, there was a there was a social layer of why that was my fondest memory. It was at a beach house in North Carolina, so I it was just perfect setting.
0: Which beach in North Carolina?
1: Uh, Topsail.
0: Gotcha. I'm from North Carolina, so... That's oh, okay. That's why I ask. Although, mostly in my life, I went to the beach in South Carolina, so...
1: Fair enough. Listen, if you're already in North Carolina, then you have an excuse to only drive an hour or so down.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Now, uh, I do have to ask another question here. Um, because you mentioned 4th edition, and I know that you have a particular love for 4th edition. Mm-hmm. I've never played 4th edition. I've only heard a handful of people say good things about it, and a whole bunch of people relentlessly crap on it. So I, I do have to ask, especially considering a lot of your peers kind of in that the bro SR circle are you know very much on board with AD&D, or OSE, or Rule Cyclopedia. Uh, why 4th edition?
1: So 4th edition was, uh, I like to put it this way, because I used to get really mad when people said that 4th edition wasn't a real edition of D&D. Uh, to me, every edition passed first is not a real edition of D&D. Um, so it seemed like a, a useless moniker. But 4th uh, edition, I later became convinced or convince myself that it was the only edition of D&D that had a and d not been developed, fourth edition still would have been developed. It was a separate game in a true sense of the word. It was operating off of a lot of the same conceits of the original games. It was operating off a lot of the same assumptions as the original games but it was uh, the the mechanics were designed sort of holistically from the ground up to support a specific vision of the designers rather than being a collection of house rules for prior editions of the game or a focus on bloating prior editions of the game.
0: Honestly, that's that's a pretty fair assessment. I think from, from the, also it was fun
1: to play. That was a pretty important detail. It was really fun to play. Um, you could get good at it. And if you got good at it, then combats would go by faster, which was interesting to me because my, I had the opposite experience in fifth edition, where the more Mm -hmm. I knew about the game, the slower my decision-making process became, even though I was still typically making the same decisions over and over again. Um, I just had more opportunities to be stressed out about it the more I knew about the game. But that wasn't the case in fourth edition. You could play almost in an accidental fashion, and cool things would erupt out of the mechanical sandbox, the combat sandbox of fourth edition, because it had been so well designed. You actually didn't need to know all the intricacies of not just your abilities but all your friends abilities if you did something in a round you could be reasonably confident that somebody at your table who did know what they were doing would be able to key off that action and do something cool as a result and as of course um, that means that you did something cool by extension so very newbie friendly very beginner friendly very well supported mechanically rigorous which is exactly
0: what i like it's interesting that you kind of come at fourth edition in that regard, because I think a lot of people hate fourth edition because it's not D&D. It's, it's not, it doesn't have the same echoes of the D&D that they're familiar with in either, uh, you know, first edition or even second or third edition. And I think that's what turned a lot of people off initially was this isn't D&D. But I mean, I guess when you approach it as nothing past AD&D first edition is D&D, then this game trying to be something other than a bastardized version of AD&D is a feature, not a bug.
1: Yes. Well, the the core issue was actually that there's for a hobby that is so invested in picturing things in your head. There's an awful lot of people who play these games who suffer from aphantasia or the inability to picture an apple in their mind. So if they read something like uh, targets burst three around uh, attack or something like that, um, or range five, all of a sudden their minds just break. They shatter into a million pieces because they cannot connect the words of the text, range five, to a distance on the board in front of them or into a uh, calculation of feet if they're just in theater of the mind. They can actually connect these two dots between range five and an enemy that is five spaces away. This is too difficult for them. Um, mm-hmm. And RPGs are home to, unfortunately, a host of very stupid people. This is the drain catch of all other hobbies. So explaining to people that, yes, range five means five spaces, means 25 feet, five feet per space, um, is... is Well, it's perfectly acceptable for people who play video games to understand, okay, range five, five spaces, 25 feet. Perfect. Five blocks of five feet. Perfect. I already know. I have an estimation in my mind of how long it's going to take to get there. I can picture the combat in my head because I know where everything is. I know where the positioning is. And these are just little abstractions, shorthands to tell me what's going on on the screen that I can then interpret in my head as somebody with an IQ above room temperature. Unfortunately, this is not a common experience across the RPG hobby, and mm-hmm. so most people are not able to do that. They see something like range 5, burst 1, and they can't translate that into a picture on the screen of their minds, because there is none. Yeah,
0: absolutely. It's it's interesting you bring that up, because I've definitely seen that as well in kind of my play experience For a hobby that is built around imagination, there are an awful lot of unimaginative people in it. And I don't know if that's just a consequence of there aren't very many imaginative people in general. And, you know, we have such a small percentage of the population that, you know, it means we have an even smaller percentage of truly imaginative people. I don't know what it is, but you're definitely onto something there that there's a lot of people who just can't picture things that you ought to be able to picture in your mind.
1: Yeah, it's it's really common uh, and it's unfortunate. Hmm. It's, it's really unfortunate because I would like this, I would like this hobby to be filled with more people who play video games. So I would like Baldur's Gate to be an introduction to an RPG. Uh, somebody goes through and plays it and says, "Okay, these are pretty fun mechanics by and large. There's some things I didn't like about it, but this is a fascinating premise. There's tons of loot. Uh, you start off in a in a net in an Nautiloid that's crashing, and then you go to hell, and then you crash uh, for to come to a final resting place in a region with fighting druids and tieflings and goblins, and what's, like this sort of three-way faction play tension that's going on." while you have this uh, urgent overarching goal that you really need to resolve soon that sounds like a great experience you're telling me that i don't need to pay sixty dollars for it fantastic i could just get my friends around and we could sit around a table what a fun experience that would be there's just generally not rpgs out there for those people there are rpgs um we we have a glut of rpgs which are designed for those less imaginative people who uh can't like i said they just they're defined by not being able to picture an apple in their head so Mm -hmm. there's there's nothing there's nothing i can do except be upset run games and uh kick those people out as i as i sort of rescue or shepherd people who might enjoy actual rpgs into uh into a new culture of doing things
0: Yeah, there there does kind of seem to be this uh, population of people who are content to stay inside the cave. But, you know, again, all all we
1: can... With with regards to how imaginative they are and whether they're staying inside the cave, uh, RPGs allow you to think that you are good at doing certain things by accident. Mm -hmm. Or that you are good at being a designer Or that you're good at or that you have the same knowledge as somebody else who creates things. Because it's only based on words. You need far fewer words than you typically need for something like writing a book. And you need no specific technical skills in order to produce something that you can label as being creative, right? If I'm I'm a uh, motion graphics artist, I need a certain knowledge of Cinema 4D or Blender in order to output my renders. Um, if I if I were a artist working with traditional mediums, I would need, ne- need to know how to hold the paintbrush and how to mix my paints and how to thin them. If I was designing a video game, uh, I most certainly wouldn't be doing it on my own, but if I were to fill, any, if I were to wear any hat out of the huge, huge numbers of people who could be working on a video game at any given one time, I would need some kind of technical skill and this is only as far as i can tell not true in tabletop rpgs you can just smear words across the page or smear words over somebody else's words across the page and say aha i've done it i've created
0: game pretty much yeah yeah And unfortunately i think you're onto something there um now off on kind of a different track you and i again both had very similar starting points in the hobby started with the same edition started right around the same time um how did you first get exposed to these kind of bro sr ideas when when did you first run into jeffro where did kind of this thinking start to come into play for you
1: So I've been studying game design for a number of years, about 10 years, like making an actual study of things, listening to, starting off by listening to GDC conferences and then picking out specific designers who had visions or creative directives that ended up producing games, which I liked, Chris Avellone, Josh Sawyer. Um, I'll stick with those two for now. i only need two examples, really. And... Uh, and then I ran across this book, because I had been following a fellow named Vox Day for some time at that point, uh, starting in high school, mm-hmm. and went on the Castalia House website and found a book called "The Appendix N, The Literary History of Dungeons and Dragons. And I just started playing D&D at that point, so I bought it, and I was immediately exposed to a number of works that I was really interested in, but the one that caught my eye was the description of Roger Zelazny's The Nine Princes in Amber. Mm-hmm. And Jeffro has this wonderfully written paragraph about, imagine there's a city greater than any other. There's a city that is the greatest in the whole wide multiverse. And there are many multiverses, and there's many planes of existences. And if you even wanted to, you could find a copy of this grand city that is so beautiful that even its copies look beautiful and take it for yourself. But it wouldn't be worth it because it wouldn't be the real thing. And you and a bunch of your siblings are competing for control over this city. You almost win. You almost seize victory. You are denied victory on the slopes of your fabled beautiful grand city that was fated for you to control and it's the worst defeat that you could possibly imagine you are uh captured you're humiliated your eyes are burnt out of their sockets you're left in a dank dungeon with no way out no hope for escape and one of your retainers one of your former friends comes down and gives you a pack of marlboro cigarettes and i said done Done, perfect. Give me whatever this is and inject it straight into my veins. I mm-hmm. want it. And then I read the Chronicles of Amber, I read all 10 of the books. Um, and it was an easy sell after that. I was like, okay, clearly this guy knows what he's doing, he knows what he's talking about. We had a few article responses back and forth. I think uh, a response to Jeffro Johnson is still up on my blog somewhere. Over a minor quibbling over the word plot in RPGs. Um, He maintained that even using the word plot was generally bad or indicative of somebody who wasn't running a real game of D&D. This is like pre-BRO-SR even. Yeah. Uh, And I brought examples from my campaign where I had events going on in the background which I considered to match up with the word plot But weren't actually required for players to engage with or that they weren't even incentivized to engage with. It was just this background thread that I would pull on for unrelated, largely unrelated adventure content. There's a war going on. uh, People need powder for artillery shells. And they think the ingredients are in this cave. Go loot this cave. And that's like a secondary objective to just going in and looting the cave. Additional uh, incentive, additional uh, background for why you might be doing a certain thing. Yeah. And so we started with that argument. Then we started talking back and forth on Twitter. I got to brag that my favorite author was following me back on Twitter. um, And then it grew into a number of group chats afterwards where we, we would just discuss game design topics. We would just discuss the topic of running a good game, what it actually looked like. And it was when the discovery of one-to-one time popped onto the scene that there was was already like this, this group of guys who were willing to discuss RPGs in objective terms, or try to develop objective terms for RPGs. And so once we found mechanics, that objectively made other things better, we were, th- we were already like this willing receptacle uh, to carry on this burden of telling a hobby of complete and total idiots. That no, there aren't multiple ways of doing things. There are multiple correct ways of doing things. And preferably one correct way of doing things. Yeah, so that was just it was just being involved in this developing subculture that I really enjoyed.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, uh, Bradford Walker here in chat uh, in before Voxman bad freakouts in the comments. Uh, I will go ahead and say, having had Alex McCreese on the show three times, I think we're well beyond that. So, no, yeah. the the Voxman bad freak. I won't say already-
1: Voxman bad. I'll just say. Um, Voxman burning social trust to do things that to tell relatively petty and stupid lies that they can be easily checked on. yes um, that was a little disappointing and that was the point at which I stopped following him uh, yeah. once social once big figures start burning their social cred uh, to get or sorry once they start burning their, what would you say reliability it's it because they're getting they're burning something to get additional social cred with other crowds mm-hmm. um but maybe it's like burning their core audience i don't know yeah. i have another friend who's doing that right now in a completely unrelated space with regards to some internet drama um just you know i oh well it's you know if i if i get more eyes on my work it doesn't matter what i say to do that it's a marketing funnel And then you end up and then you just end up telling lies to people and then people call you out on it. And turns out nobody wants to buy your snake oil if it's labeled snake oil.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunate. Now, you and I actually, it's funny that we bring this up um, or that I bring this up because I feel like there's a lot of people who I now view in a positive light or view as uh you know good voices worth listening to in the rpg world who my initial contact with uh was not positive crossface and i argued the first time we met uh i did not agree with jeffro the first time that i encountered him he didn't argue with me uh but you and i kind of went at it the the first time we interacted with each other um And and yeah, was was
1: that the magic items thing?
0: Yes, okay, that's that's the the first time you and I interacted with each other, at least the first time I remember. And uh, you essentially told me that I was wrong like, not even I disagree, just flat out you're wrong, you're wrong, yeah, just wrong, yeah. And the point that I was making at the time was this was a thread i did on twitter about magic items and the point that i was making is that magic items should be rare like exceptionally rare and i came to this conclusion because i'm someone who enjoys kind of a lower fantasy game in general Mm -hmm. and what i was really going at was not you shouldn't find magic items in dungeons i think if you're going to find An abundance of magic items anywhere it's going to be buried under the ground where you have to you know go through a bunch of things that'll kill you to get them what i was really objecting to was this idea of the magic item shop that you see in your average fifth edition game where you just walk into this store owned by some eclectic bearded man who has like a holy avenger just sitting on his wall and if you have enough gold uh you can just buy that from him instead of having to actually you know like go into some knight's tomb and fight through a bunch of undead to pull that thing off of uh you know his sarcophagus you can just go into the shop and buy it from this guy that's that's primarily what i was objecting to but i i i want you to Kind of explain your point here to everyone here and then we'll, we'll kind of discuss it from there
1: yeah so my point is if i have a design directive in tabletop rpgs this has come up recently in uh only a semi-related uh, topic of newer editions of games is that loot should be common your players should be doing things for loot Even if you have a player or two who is not explicitly doing things for loot, loot should fall from the sky, like Mana from Heaven, provided they are adventuring and doing things which are supposed to produce loot. Because when we play a game, like when I play Baldur's Gate, I can go into... There is, in fact, uh, plus one weapons and a number of shopkeepers. Uh, There are specialty arrows and equipment and occasionally magic items to be found with some regular regularity hidden away in stockpiles, crashes, caches, um, pockets of, of dead goblins all over the place that are meant to adjust or change my experience, to adjust the sandbox of the game. It's why I'm playing. I need, if I'm going to be playing a video game sitting in front of my computer, I need some kind of dopamine hit That tells me, aha, you've done a thing. Congratulations, you have acquired a thing as a result. And it's the same for any game. It's not just video games. It's also uh, board games. It's also tabletop RPGs. We play games partially because we are entertained by the prospect of enduring some hardship in order to acquire a reward. And this is a foreign concept to most of the rpg industry this is one of the things that first got me into the brosr going back to, circling back to our earlier topic was my first big fight with the rpg pundit um was over the concept of magic items and whether they should be rare and i know that magic item shops in particular are not as attractive as they could be um Something like an auction might more properly represent the power and uh, need for uh, uh, a need for the ability to sell uh, to sell or dispose of magical items, to fence them, if you will. So mm-hmm. something like an auction, which my friend Matt did, I believe in, our, in the second campaign he ran, um, might be more explanatory it might be a wizard who doesn't require gold but requires some of the resource to acquire these items those are reasonable i understand that a magic item shop strips a little bit of the mundane out of it but for me personally um i don't it works in a pinch and i come at people so vigorously and with such venom over this topic because Only in the RPG space do I have to justify people the necessity of acquiring rewards on a weekly basis.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I I, I definitely, again, see where you're coming from on this because you can only give players just, you know, higher amounts of gold coins for so long. There does have to be some kind of novelty and variety in what they're being given. It is an incentive to adventure. If you're constantly finding stuff, uh, then, you know, there's more of that need to go out there and find more stuff. Now, as far as kind of a solution to the the magic item shop to make them not as mundane, but still, you know, have a market that you can sell your magic items on. um, I think Aaron, Aaron the Pedantic, actually came up with the idea that I like the best. And it's it's like magic item shops are kind of like um what Drebin runs in Metal Gear Solid 4. You've got this like mysterious figure who people who are in the know know that this guy can buy and sell magic items for you and and get you what you need. But it's it's one of those things where you have to earn a certain amount of trust and you have to be uh you know ingratiated into certain circles if you were to be kind of given access to these goods that the, uh, this vendor has to offer.
1: Right, you have a contact, a raider, prospector, vendor, as you said, um, which reminds me of Matt Colville's solution, which was the idea of magic item clubs. But uh, these are sort of peripheral topics because there's a number of ways to do things interestingly. There are a number of, like I said earlier, there are a number of ways to do things correctly. Uh, guys are very attractive to, uh, attracted to the idea that you could do anything any number of ways. Uh, they're very big on insisting that you could do anything anyhow if you just put your mind to it and stuff like that. And that's unfortunately stupid to those of us in the know. There's There are a number of correct ways of doing things. And unfortunately, a lot of people are getting bottlenecked. The, the reason why we don't have more design discussions like this like, what's the preferable solution to magic item shops that does not produce a mundane work or mundane encounter for purchasing something so arcane and mysterious? Is the fact that people get bottlenecked at the subject of including rewards at all? Mm-hmm. They don't think that, like, oh no, if a magic item, if my plus one sword is rare, then it's special, and magic items have to be special. And there's no other quality that makes something special, of course. I could have a set of Nike shoes in an RPG, and they would be just as valuable if they were one of of a kind as a plus five Holy Avenger, Mm -hmm. because rarity makes them special. And people will say this without batting an eye, without thinking for two seconds, because they're just so eager to bite that bullet of bad gaming. And insisting that they couldn't possibly be convinced to do anything, any other way, but taking rewards out of their players' mouths for, um, that they are rightly owed for their adventure and risking their lives. Yeah. Just saying things like, oh, well, if the, if there was only one cracker on planet Earth, then it would be, it would be special. It would be cool because it's a because there's only one of a kind. It's like, no, crackers are by their nature bland. Certain things are dynamic and interesting by their nature. An airship, for instance, you could have a world that has one airship or you could have a world that has 10,000 airships. And in either world, airships are special because flight is generally seen as the addition of dynamism and new opportunities and uh, adventuring paths that were not open to you beforehand once you acquire flight. It's a pretty Mm. common response. In one world, there's only one airship, so that's so you're the only ones with access to this. But in the other world, for instance, you might have airships that are dogfighting. You might have airships dogfighting uh, uh, creatures who themselves can fly. Um, so it's people. These are design elements that I can talk about with with. Video game designers, and they will just get it immediately. They will understand, okay, mm-hmm. something that uh, a staff that lifts the earth from the ground is is dynamic in some way that maybe a plus one sword is not. And so making the, the the earth staff a little bit rarer to tamp down on some player shenanigans or to just make it a more worthy object of adventuring is perfectly reasonable. But I can't have those discussions because they're bottlenecked in RPGs. I think I think there's a comment that actually might actually um, might actually reflect this. I'm reading it now. Let's
0: see whose comment was it? Uh, Rex Teal one. Gotcha. So uh, not all good it? loot has to be magical, but if it's magical, then it must be important, that one.
1: Yes. See, this is orthogonal, or a, if I'm people were being pedantic about an appropriately named Discord server about <laughs> this word earlier. So uh, I'll change I'll change my description. Uh, this is divorced from what kind of magic item should be making it into your game. I agree that not all good loot has to be magical. I'm a big fan of including firearms or pneumatics or um, enchanted, or well, I guess I shouldn't say enchanted, or let's say alchemical or just, quote, special weapons. That could be made use. so that's fun. Um, in fact, most magical items should be either the core of the adventure or spark a new adventure, and that's not the case in a game where you're getting loot every single week, which should include... To my mind a magic item provided there's the, the people are doing uh are are properly adventuring right they're not just clearing two rooms in a given night hmm. um but that's it this comment is not the case for an appropriate pace of rewards in a game in a real game um and so people come up with these heuristics for things that make them sound smart to other people who play RPGs but are just completely insane in any other medium. Mm-hmm. There's another one, the rarity of magic items should also reflect setting. No, your setting should reflect the game. All the settings out there really functionally only exist um the ones that I'll say were made in good faith and not just ported over from somebody's failed uh fantasy work. And even some of those are good. Shout out to Birthright. Um, These settings were only ever developed as a shell or something in which you could include the core rules of the game. They were not the focus of the game. They were never the... um, I shouldn't say never... Um, they're not the reason we're playing per se. The game has to include certain things, and one of those is loot and magic items. So this end run, this end run that people so love in the OSR of, well, I'm running a low magic game. What can be done except to not give the players loot is is just stupid. Everybody knows what you're doing. Um, I'm ch- you're just changing the rules of the game via, I don't know what you would even call it. It's not really narrative. You're just instantiating a rule that says there will not be this many magic items because I'm only handpicking them and I'm never going to give them to uh, people who want to enjoy a regular, typical game.
0: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, Crafty brings up a good point here. We do have a a name topic uh, for this episode. So, uh, Speaking of real games... I think we should transition here and and talk about, uh, first of all, let's define what exactly is the Grand Campaign. A lot of people throw that term around. How would you define the Grand Campaign? I have
1: two definitions, one of which you can find in my video on Intro to the Grand Campaign, where I just describe it as the best way to play D&D. It is the collection of multiple different referees, players, factions, people who are acting as all three, in worlds which take advantage of the full breadth and depth of fantasy games in a way or the fantasy genre in a way that conventional play can not and i've been working on a second definition that is far more direct into the heart of things but unfortunately does rely on outside terminology because like for reasons that we discussed earlier with RPGs being filled with absolutely brain dead, stupid people that should never see the light of day um, and don't know how to discuss these things. But for the people who do understand these video game terms and who I can explain them to, uh, we're going to, we're going to give it our best shot. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the definition I've been working on as, as recently as today is that a grand campaign is a game in which the campaign events or the available triggers, procs, um, we'll just say I don't need to abide by the rule three here, in which the available triggers and procs were events on the campaign map, such as the generation of new armies, factions, quest hooks, adventures, new resources, etc. Or changes to the terrain, changes to the map, mm-hmm. match the design of the mechanical sandbox the mechanical sandbox is this game is this uh, description of all the actions and all the things that you're going to do from moment to moment and by and large they mostly resemble one another most things in for instance tnd fifth edition are you roll a die or somebody else rolls a die and then a thing happens and usually what that thing happens is is somebody losing hit points or something happens to them which makes it easier for them to lose hit points and they mostly adhere to like this they they mostly adhere to this definition that or or pattern that you could boil down almost every single thing in the game into except often the off on the side of nearly all of these different game elements are little riders or independent game elements that have no independent purpose to them. Riders are things that produce different additional effects when following the like the main pattern of an action. So if I have a a maneuver that lets me force somebody to bleed or if I have a weapon, a magic weapon that makes me, gives me the capacity to force somebody to bleed, uh, that is a rider on weapon attacks, and then you have independent elements like uh, most often environmental assets. Like there's a pool of water, there's a uh, puddle of grease, there's uh, a, there's a pool of lava. It's usually going to be it's usually going to be some something environmental. There is a heavy crate weighing approximately hundred pounds. So. Uh, the game relies on these different little riders and external elements to produce a variety of gameplay. For instance, uh, mm. web. You know the spell. All right. Do you know the spells uh, web, grease, and hypnotic pattern? Yes. Okay. They mostly do the same thing. Yeah. They lock the targets in a specific area. They do the same thing.
0: Mm-hmm
1: some people in the rpg industry whose mission it is to boil things down as much as possible to reveal that you can get the experience of what they think DD is just by again boiling everything down into um into as few distractions for pure adventure pattern adventuring as possible adventure pattern gaming as possible would say okay so we don't really need these three spells but a designer, somebody who works in video games, could look at these three spells and say, okay, what does web do that hypnotic pattern and uh, Grease do not? One of the things that web does is that if it catches on fire, it will remove the spell, one, and two, will actually begin incinerating any opponents that have been caught in the spell, at least in the 5th edition version. Now, that doesn't change the purpose of the spell that's usually not going to if you're going to lock trying to lock somebody down in a target area you're usually choosing the web spell for that if you want to set people on fire there are other spells which do that but because there are other elements that set people on fire and there are instances or encounters in which it's ideal to lock people down in a specific target area That means that occasionally when you cast web on people, something else is going to happen, or someone else is going to do something, or some environmental element has already been introduced into the encounter, which is going to set that web on fire. Mm -hmm. Which is going to occasionally kill people or deal damage. And this produces variety in the mechanical sandbox of the game. Similarly, to wrap up our definition here, Grand campaigns take the com- the variety of mechanical, combat-focused, or just individually action-focused mechanical sandboxes in which you have a standard pattern of actions and a lot of riders or nifty elements that produce dynamism in play and, uh, and applies that approach to the campaign map. Hmm. So you say, um, we're going to have a dwarven hold over here. And a dwarven hold over here and this dwarven hold is going to be like most uh other settlements in the game frankly it's not going to have too many other mechanics for whatever reason but it has one little thing that's neat about it that's special about it that gives it a- access to another campaign mechanic that dwarven hold over here does not so if players go adventuring in dwarven hold a or dwarven hold b they have a chance to get a different experience um, than they would in, in the opposite Dwarven Hold.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so too do the factions, the other factions on the and settlements on the campaign map, when they're interacting with this Dwarven Hold or the other Dwarven Hold, they're potentially going to have different experiences. And this is going to potentially produce different adventure material for the players to take advantage of. It is a fractal Set of adventure material and content that gets that can be engaged with at nearly every stage or tier of play.
0: Gotcha. So, I mean, a lot of what it sounds like to me is instead of taking kind of the worst elements of video games that a lot of people lean on uh, and, and create kind of this, uh, you know, create kind of this, uh, issue that a lot of gamers have with, uh, video games influence on role-playing. You are suggesting that we lean more on the good aspects of video games, namely the ideas of game design and marry that with, um, this, this Bronstein style of play that uh, you know Jeffro and other people in the BROSR have been talking about, where there are multiple players, multiple referees, all kind of doing the same job as each other in, in different circumstances. So you're, you're taking a very interesting approach here, and one that I have to admit I haven't thought of because, I mean, I guess I, I have not studied game design the way that, that you have. Uh, but this is kind of an, an, an interesting idea and one that I'm really excited to see you kind of dig into and explain in your series on running the grand campaign. So is that kind of your your ambition is to, you know, essentially create your own running the game, but for this this new yes, that's, of the grand campaign?
1: That's exactly what it is. I'm even to a certain extent following Matt Colville's uh, path uh for developing this video series which is why i haven't made a video in like two or three weeks because i'm still working on your first adventure which uh is a little bit more of a, a daunting task for something like a grand campaign than than the dalian tomb certainly not to cascade on the dalian tomb or even to say that your first game that you run is going to be terrifically complex or something like that but because i'm explaining the different elements I mean, Matt Colville had to make like a 40 minute video on a five room dungeon, uh, which is relatively simple to run because he's explaining what makes a five room dungeon work in the player's heads and how they're likely to interact with it. So when I'm explaining the grand campaign, I also have to put these additional uh, linguistic mental rails on for the benefit of the referee who's going to be running it and -hmm. attempting to spin it into a grand campaign with other referees and other parties and players. So, it takes. It's taking me a while, but that is my vision for it.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, because again, Uh-oh, this is an idea. Exact... In, in the way that you explained, something it. silly
1: has just happened. Oh, we're just going to switch headsets here for a moment because uh, the same thing has. Happy. Can you hear me now? I'm going to have to refresh my uh my audio. Just give me a moment. All good?
0: Yeah, so I while we're waiting on uh james to come back here um it, it, this is really kind of an interesting thing to to think about um okay looks like he's back all right is that better for you
1: yes i can uh i can hear again sometimes, sometimes... things just uh go just go off the rails mm-hmm. for no apparent reason it's
0: ridiculous now, I, I, I'm glad uh, to, to kind of pick back up where we were. I'm, I'm glad that you are deciding to kind of go in this direction of essentially following the, the Matt Colville formula, because what you have, like, what you presented to us, I understand it somewhat, but there's a lot of different pieces to explain and a lot of different things to break down and, and get people to understand, yeah. because as you've pointed out. Most people in the role-playing world have not thought about the game in these terms.
1: So they've just thought about rules that they found inconvenient for them rather than like the design of the game, which makes is part of the reason why people have been struggling with defining the grand campaign to begin with. Um, It's really hard to explain. Like if I choose to focus in on all of the tiny little random elements that produce a variety of gameplay experiences, and for my definition of the grand campaign, I have to immediately face a whole bunch of people who are going to say, well, I run a, I run conventional play, and they have a variety of campaign experiences. And then I have to go through a laundry list of all the campaign experiences that they have most certainly not engaged with in their own home in their conventional play, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, uh, I have a few easy ones. Like, when's the last time uh, your if your players encountered a tornado? That usually shuts people down relatively quickly. They start getting the deer in the headlights look. Like, oh shit, <laughs> I'm I'm talking with somebody who's oh, I don't know how to engage with this conversation anymore. Right. Um. But then you have people who are are very sufficiently uh, infused or or sunken into their ignorance who like going further on and saying, actually, you don't need all that other stuff. It's fine to just have um, a version of Halo where all you do is poke out and then shoot and then reload and go back behind cover and stuff like that. Because that is the core gameplay loop of a game like Halo or a lot of first person shooters. But that's not why people find Halo fun. Bungie spent a lot of, lot of time... If, have you played the Halo games? I should yes. be asking this first. Yeah, okay.
0: I've played the first three Halo games.
1: There's a lot of old people around here, so I have to I have <sighs> to adjust my, my tack. Um, Bungie put a lot of work into making sure that the, the so-called 15 seconds of fun, where Halo would be fun, even if you were just popping out of cover, shooting, going back into cover, reloading, and then repeating that scenario uh, based on the feedback of the weapons, And the way that they operated and whether they some were more accurate than others and some were better suited to the enemies you were encountering than others but it's not the thing that made halo fun the thing that made halo fun was all of the different physics interactions where you would throw a grenade and then it might detonate a whole bunch of other grenades that have been left on the ground by a dead enemy. And that mm. might send, uh, uh that might destroy some cover or send it flying or send a vehicle flying or might send cover flying into a vehicle and would kill the occupant such that you now had a, a, had a free driver's seat. So now you could walk up to that vehicle, take it over, and now you could engage the encounter with a vehicle where, and, Enjoy this reversal of roles constantly produced by these different physics interactions. And again, tiny gameplay elements. Nobody thinks of the grenade as being why Halo is fun. But if you take out the grenade, Halo is less fun. That's why it's so difficult to drill down on these different design dis- uh, decisions. Because you have to start almost with this tautology of grand campaigns are actually just campaigns which are Complete, mm-hmm. which yeah. are real. Mm-hmm. They're campaigns that include everything fantasy should have, yeah, but everybody true. approaches this with just, "Well, I run a fantasy campaign, and I already have everything that it should have. What can mm-hmm. I possibly be missing?" Yeah, um, and it's 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 frustrating, but it's worth engaging with. I right? even with the dumbest people I could possibly talk to. There's usually something I give. Granted, I've scaled back my interactions with dumb people, um, but it's. I think. I think it is a worthy goal to sort of define this, to redefine the breadth and depth of the fantasy genre outside of five foot corridors, explored ad infinitum, fun as that is,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: to including men at arms, including hirelings including spell research, including domain play, including factions acting independent of the players, independent of the referees, uh, competing over the over the campaign map for territory, loot and prestige, and their own of course wing conditions. this it just produces a different gameplay experience than conventional play. but we have a long road ahead of us because we have 50 years of the hobby defined by, Either adventuring in five foot hallways uh, or following whatever failed comic book outline the GM produced.
0: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Crafty Matt mentions uh, the throw in Street Fighter. The scrub doesn't like the throw. It disrupts their fun because the scrub doesn't understand the throw, but gets angry at us when we use the throw instead of learning.
1: Yep. Yep. It's a pretty good explanation. Like, sorry, guys, grenades would, if they develop, if we, if I wasn't supposed to use these grenades, it wouldn't be part of the game.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I have to use the grenades, actually. I have to send that warthog or other vehicle flying. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like I said with the web example earlier, there's all of these incidental, in fact, maybe I can boil down a definition here in that, the grand campaign maximizes the incidental aha or how cool moments out of the uh, out of the entire campaign at every tier of play simultaneously for every tier of player such that even events that are happening on the domain scale or whatever lies above are still impacting the lowest level character who's just escaped their DCC funnel.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, again, I, I keep thinking about the different kind of implications of this. We're, we're talking about this very much in a fantasy context, uh, but even kind of from the beginning of reading How to Win at d and I've also been thinking about this in the context of, you know, running this kind of game with a Western.
1: Oh, I thought I was expecting sci-fi, but sure, yeah, absolutely.
0: Oh, well, yeah, like there's an Red Dead,
1: Red Dead Redemption is a is a Brownstein Western in which there are multiple factions uh, pursuing your camp across a variety of uh, missions and experiences of regions in the campaign, and there are random encounters everywhere for you to experience and uh, little. Uh, little moments that have that could not be handcrafted mm-hmm. to be so perfect they are so incidental they are wow. they have to exist as a part of a number generator rather than a human being's mind because a human being would never think of them mm. um I don't know if there's a genre that wouldn't benefit from this style of play I am desperate for a, a for a lancer game or something that's lancer adjacent in this style of play i want titanfall i want to lead the militia of 20 foot tall giant robots Mm -hmm. to satisfy
0: my urges all right yeah and even um, i've also been thinking about it for superheroes as well just also reading through ascendant right now uh, this idea of kind of starting out as a superhero in, in an individual city and bringing together other heroes, moving beyond just your city, kind of forming something like a Justice League where you are now essentially responsible for a whole planet as a group of superheroes with different factions working out. There's a lot of different ways that you can you can split this. And so I'm, I'm very excited to see kind of where you go with your video so that Those of us who are just now finding out about this style, who are just now kind of digging into what it takes to make this work, can uh, think about applications into other genres, be they sci-fi, mech, superhero, or Western.
1: Yeah. No, I'm I'm happy that you're excited. I'm excited to do it. Um, I I just need help at this point. Mm -hmm. I just need help. I like to think of my videos as being broadly speaking well produced. Um, Some are more well produced than others, but I, hell, I have aces and eights. That's the, oh, that's not the World War II dogfighting one. That's the, that's what, that's the Western that had the, The cattle driving prospecting rules and RPGs. Awesome. Mm But yeah, it's uh, it, it's it's difficult at the moment, um, especially because I'm I'm going through so many interviews for new jobs at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm hoping that once that settles down, I'll have the, the money to just pay somebody to help me with editing and stuff like that. Yeah. And so I could get the, the word out more. Uh, get back on the weekly upload schedule. There's a lot to talk about. And like I said, because we are trail because we are not treading old ground, we are. Uh, we're we're trailblazing here mm-hmm. in a way such that like other people have not discussed these content this this content in the in the subject of RPGs and people have produced a a mental prison or mental cage in RPGs such that we can't discuss all the gaming elements that people have taken for granted
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you can't tell people that you're Uh, campaign style is defined by all the things that they've taken for granted. That sort of double negative inside their heads just doesn't compute. It doesn't translate to anything useful. You might stoke their natural curiosity, but RPGs I don't think are even a
0: a hobby with a lot of curious people in them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and what we're coming down to at this point is the hobby has to change in some kind of fundamental way we've been doing this for 50 years at this point in one specific way we've been going in one specific direction um and we're seeing that direction kind of slowly die off we're seeing the the core audience of role-playing games age and become set in their ways and not really willing to try something new and at the same time you have a lot of very unsatisfied young people who don't like playing this way but they're still kind of fascinated by the idea of these games and they engage with video games that have kind of you know similar concepts to what you're talking about so to capture that new audience and to really innovate and iterate on what we have here, we, we have to start to think about the game in new terms. And so I really appreciate, again, what what you are doing in that regard, because you are at, if nothing else, you are offering, here is a direction we can go in. And I know you believe it's the correct direction. It sounds good to me, but, you know, at the very, at, at bare minimum, you are offering a solution. And that's more than a lot of people are offering right now.
1: Somewhere somebody can go. I mean, just the idea that um there is a right way of playing RPGs to begin with is is hostile to people. But if we think about it, there are there is a what there is a right way to participate in an art gallery. There is. Yeah. There are there are maybe many correct ways. To participate in an art gallery but we know for a fact that if you went into an art gallery and all the lights were off or all the light bulbs had been unscrewed we'll say and all the canvases had been covered over by black tarp such that even if you had some superb night vision you couldn't even observe the paintings that would be wrong yeah that would be a denial of the conceits of the medium the reason you were engaged in this activity to begin with have been shat on pointlessly mm-hmm. um, effort has been spent preventing you from engaging with the conceits of the medium and we can definitively say that is wrong if i'm playing a video game and I can't engage with like my controller or my mouse or anything like that. And I'm just taken through two hours of cutscenes, and then I see game over. Something has gone wrong. And RPGs, if I am not a, if I am not permitted to engage or enjoy a breadth and depth of a specific genre, past which movies, books, or video games combined could not provide me with then the rpg is wrong Mm -hmm. either the rpg is wrong or we're playing it wrong because we're not engaged with the core conceits of the medium which is my freedom to engage the full breadth and depth of the genre if i don't have the capacity to engage in mass combat without disrupting the entire campaign in a fashion that keeps it from playing Mm -hmm. Something is wrong. Right. If I'm in a campaign that is run by somebody who can't accommodate my engaging in mass combat without it, quote, ruining their campaign, they are wrong. Mm -hmm. Just saying definitively, they are wrong. There is a reason we are playing these games or should be playing these games uh, is hostile to a lot of old people and some young people as well. But it's an easier sell to young people because we have competing mediums. Yeah. Right now, I'm getting something out of Baldur's Gate 3 that I'm not going to get in a conventional play game, whether it's 5th edition or 1st edition or 3rd edition or somebody's uh, Frankenbrew, or if we're playing Wraith the Oblivion, I'm getting something out of Baldur's Gate that I'm not going to get in most RPGs. I'm already, in a video game, getting a better, a better breadth and depth of the fantasy genre. I'm on an alien spaceship of a race that eats people's brains that got attacked by red dragons, teleported to hell, and then crashed on the material plane. That's already more exotic and more interesting and more entertaining than the vast majority of conventional play out there. So we've got a lot of work to do in the RPG industry, but luckily video game designers... You know, the, the people that RPG writers like to think of themselves as or being equivalent to being equals with are slowly, steadily starting to move into this hobby and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they have a largely positive influence.
0: Now, we are unfortunately running up on the end of our time. We'll, we'll definitely have to come back to this conversation at some point because there's so much more to talk about here um and and what i'll do for next time is i i need to dig into some more of these concepts and, and begin to kind of read about them myself because i i really do think what you're working on here is is brilliant but i i have two questions i want to leave you with uh before we wrap things up and the first one uh are you the son of Glenn Danzig?
1: sure. Why
0: not? <laughs> I just, it's the I chin. See, yes, it's, it's the chin, it's the hair, it's the build. Um, I don't know how tall you are, but like... Not tall. I, know, I see it. And you're
1: tall women for a reason.
0: And then the next question... We have
1: something else we have in common. I'll get my uh, raggedy-ass uh, misfit shirt out of the closet that i bought in 2015 from a hot topic having never listened to a misfits song before that
0: Mm -hmm. yeah just throw on a misfits t-shirt and a leather jacket and you've got your halloween costume this year excellent and then uh, the other question um the other question that i have for you this is one everyone gets asked when they come on here the answer can be as philosophical or as sophomoric as you want it to be Uh, but if you could put anything on a t-shirt what would it be
1: Put anything on a t
0: shirt, what would it be? Uh.
1: I would like a visual graphic that would just uh, stun people upon looking at it. Um, that would just draw the eye in so many different directions that it would be too distracting to function in normal uh, normal capacity. That'll work. Other than that, I'd like a new pattern of something equivalent to flannels.
0: Yeah, fair enough. All right. Well, James, thank you so much for coming on here tonight. I think you've given us a lot of uh, you know stuff to think about. And Jeffro, uh, Jeffro, Jeff we're not going to retire this segment because. Even if you want to retire the t-shirt as an article of clothing, you still have to wear something to the gym. I'm not going to work out in a fucking tuxedo, all right? You have to, like, you got to wear something when you're exercising, so.
1: He might disagree with you. He (laughs) might bite that bullet.
0: Coming soon, video of Jeffro bench pressing in a tuxedo. All right. So uh
1: I meant about the concept of having to wear anything at all. Oh you well, might get a completely different it might be uploaded somewhere else.
0: Oh look I, I think naked workouts are already a thing.
1: Different websites starting with X. Yes. Thanks Elon but... for the rebrand.
0: <laughs> anyway, thank you so much for coming on here. Uh this has been a great conversation. You've given me a lot to think about and uh I'm definitely looking forward to uh, the the videos that, that you'll be making on the subject.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was a really fun discussion. I like uh, this delightful change of pace where I could just discuss things in objective terms and not have to worry about all the fake RPG bravado of, you know, that wouldn't fly at my table. If you were power gaming at my table, I'd kick you out.
0: (laughs) So nice to get away from that nonsense. Yeah. All right, well, guys, that's going to do it for Rollin' Bones this week. Uh, next week, I will be at the beach, so no rolling Bones, not doing it from the beach, I'm sorry. Uh, but the week after that, uh, Greg Lambert will be returning to Rollin' Bones, and he and I are going to be talking about a concept that he's been sharing in Basic Experts' Gilded Server, uh, something I'm interested to discuss with him, and that's this idea that fantasy is inherently conservative and traditional. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. I'm looking Woo! forward to hearing what he has to say. Uh we're we're kind of going for the jugular on this one. Uh, but I do think even if you disagree with that in your gut, you might uh what it sounds what fascinating. Greg has to
1: say. I I will be tuning
0: in with a bated breath. And uh crafty unfortunately I am not as uh, I am not as awesome as Mr. Wargaming. So there's that. I, I I have a ways to go
1: before. You I just got to kick up it. our Patreon numbers before we start doing stuff like that. That's yeah. the that's the real answer. Mm-hmm. You got to pitch
0: in. Absolutely. Well, guys, thank you so much for tuning in tonight, and uh, you know, remember to to check out uh, James's channel, Gelatinous Rube. I'll go ahead and drop the link here in chat, and then we will drop it in the pinned comment for those of you watching after the fact. Uh, So until next time, whether you rolled a 1 or a 20, I'm so glad that you rolled your bones with me, Ryan Howard, and I will see you guys next time. Peace.